In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow Jones was down 380 points today. In fact, this is the second consecutive 300 point drop we've had in the Dow. You know, the Dow now is down about 4% for the month of February, which just came to an end today. And that also means the Dow's record breaking monthly winning streak has also come to an end. Remember, the Dow has been up every month since Donald Trump was elected president, including every single month in calendar year 2017. That is something that has never happened in the history of the stock market. There's always been at least one month during any year where the market went down, except for last year when it went up every month. And of course, we were also up in January, but not so in February. Big decline. Dow dropped better than 1,000 points on the month. And we'll see if this is the beginning of a much bigger downturn. In fact, it could easily be the beginning of a bear market. The supposed catalyst for the sell-off yesterday and again today was Powell's testimony uh, before Congress yesterday. Now, he goes up again, I think, the Senate tomorrow. He was in front of the House yesterday to give his, his talk about the economy And of course, you know, I watch this stuff and it is just a show, right? It's all political because you have Republicans basically asking self-serving questions about how great, uh, you know, the tax cuts are for the economy. Uh, Once in a while, they bring up the debt. But, you know, ironically, of course, they're contributing to the debt with the tax cuts and 
the increases in spending. And of course, you got the Democrats that like to point out that, you know, the African-American unemployment rate is still so high as if there's anything the Federal Reserve can do about that. Right. I mean, the Federal Reserve, I think, is is undermining the economy based on its monetary policy. But to say that there's any particular monetary policy that can be targeted at African-Americans. I mean, the biggest irony is that the reason that the unemployment rate is so high in minority communities, including African-Americans, is because of Congress. I mean, these Democrats who are feigning outrage at the Fed, like asking for the Fed to do something about high unemployment or low labor force participation among African-Americans, they're the reason that it's happening. It's the minimum wage law. It's all the anti-discrimination laws. It's everything that government does to make it so much harder for African-Americans to get jobs. I mean, that is the problem. And of course, what about the public school system that is so miserably failing African-Americans? Those public schools are controlled by Democrats, right? Teachers unions. I mean, this is a disaster. And really, these congressmen have no right to criticize the Fed for that. I mean, they can criticize the Fed for all sorts of things. But that's not one of them. But of course, it's all self-serving. Everybody is talking for their own constituents. Nobody really cares what uh, uh, Jerome Powell says, except the market, right? The stock market is is looking and caring about what he says. But none of the congressmen or senators really give a damn. I mean, they might as well have a parrot there. They're just talking for sound bites uh, for their own constituents. But what Powell said that spooked the markets He was optimistic. He was hawkish. He was bullish on the economy. I mean, first of all, what does anybody expect? I mean, how would he not be bullish on the economy? He's on Team Trump, right? He's a team player. Just like Ben Bernanke said that he was a team player uh, when he was talking about how great the economy was under Bush. Well, Powell has now joined a similar team, Republican team. He's a Republican. So the Republican narrative is everything is great. The economy is booming. And so uh, Powell is going to toe that same line. But of course, when Powell speaks, markets listen. And the markets didn't like that upbeat tone because it made them think, oh, we're going to keep getting rate hikes, right? Maybe we're going to get four rate hikes instead of three. And the stock market sold off. Now, it rallied again a little bit this morning. We were up over 150, I think, early in the day, but you know, down 380. Almost all of the decline happened uh, in the last hour of trading, as is typically the case with some of these sell-offs. And so uh, it doesn't bode well for tomorrow unless Jerome Powell tries to fix what he broke. Because now that he knows that the markets don't like how bullish he was, maybe he'll be a little bit less bullish when he when he talks tomorrow, because sometimes that happens when a Fed chairman says something and the market reacts badly to what he said, then they try to do some damage control. Because remember, the Fed chairman does not want the market going down because they believe in the wealth effect. Donald Trump, the Republicans certainly don't want the market going down because they're claiming credit for the market going up. I mean, they want uh, the market to be higher and they want to claim credit for that. And so they don't want it to go down. So obviously, if they think that it's Powell's you know, comment that is the reason the market went down, then they got to, you know, they got to correct it, right? He's got to go in and do the damage control. So we'll see what happens when he, when he talks tomorrow. But, you know, the biggest irony of it is he's wrong. Powell is talking about the economy getting stronger. It's not getting stronger. In fact, he actually talked about the potential for the economy 
overheating, right? It's going to get so strong that it's going to overheat. Now, first of all, this whole idea that the economy can overheat is pure Keynesian nonsense. You know, the Keynesians like to compare the economy uh, to, to a car, right? And there's a gas and a brake, right? And the Fed is driving the economic car and it steps on the, the brake when it wants to slow things down and it steps on the gas when it wants to speed things up, right? All this is nonsense. But then the idea is, well, if you keep your foot on the gas for too long, right, you're going to rev the motor too hot and it's going to overheat. And by overheating, they mean causing inflation. And by inflation, I don't mean actual inflation. Let's just talk about the way the Keynesians and the way the Fed and just about everybody else likes to uh, define inflation, which is rising prices, right? So the idea is that if the economy overheats, prices are going to rise too fast. And now the Fed is going to have to slam on the brake, right, by jacking up interest rates. So he raised the prospect of an overheating economy. And again, before I even get into the fact that you know the economy is much weaker uh, than Powell uh, believes, let me again talk about this idea that an economy could overheat. That is impossible. An economy cannot grow so fast that the result is that prices rise because a growing economy lowers prices. See, if an economy is actually growing, it is becoming more productive, right? There's more economic output. You have more workers producing more stuff right? More factories are, are spewing out products. So in a growing economy that is producing more stuff, right? The increase in the supply of stuff means that stuff gets cheaper, right? That is the benefit of a growing economy. An economy that grows lowers prices and therefore raises living standards, right? But the Keynesians don't look at supply. They look at demand and they think, well, if there's too much demand, right? Because that's also supply and demand. If there's too much demand, prices will go up. And they think a growing economy leads to more demand, which leads to rising prices. That is wrong. A growing economy doesn't increase demand. A growing economy increases supply. Demand is already there. Demand is infinite. In fact, you know, I remember when my dad first started talking to me about economics when I was a little kid, he described to me economics as the science of how to satisfy unlimited human demand with limited resources, because resources are scarce and limited and demand is is unlimited. I mean, think about it. People want everything, right? I mean, there's no limit to what people want, right? There's a limit to what society can produce and therefore what people can afford, but there is no limit on demand, right? I mean, wouldn't everybody want a Lamborghini? Or maybe not everybody, but most guys would like to have a Lamborghini. Why can't they buy one? Because there's not enough of them. The supply is what limits uh, people's ability to buy them, right? If they could just mass produce Lamborghinis, then the price would come down and more people could buy them. But because they have to make them by hand and it takes a long time, right? There's only a limited production. And so the price is much higher. But that doesn't mean that there's more demand. If the price comes down, it doesn't mean there's more demand. It just means that more people who want them can afford them, right? That's really what's going on. As prices come down, things that you want become more affordable, and therefore, it's more likely that you will buy it. But that's not really growing demand, right? Demand is already there. So the limiting factor is supply in an economy, not demand. Demand is unlimited and omnipresent. What is limited is supply and the ability to satisfy that demand. Now, if 
production is increasing so that more people who demand things can actually afford them, right? Prices are not going up, right? A growing economy doesn't increase demand, it increases supply. And supply allows people who want things to afford them. People become more productive, uh, economies are more productive and more efficient. And, and so more people can actually turn that demand into purchases, into, into actual consumption. But the idea that people simply wanting things or buying things is what causes inflation is pure nonsense. What causes inflation or what is inflation is the expansion of the money supply. But what causes prices to go up is that people have more money. And if everybody has more money with which to bid up the price of stuff, because the supply that's growing is the supply of money. And if the supply of money is growing faster than the supply of stuff, then obviously the price of stuff is going to go up. Now, sometimes you can have government creating inflation at a slower pace than an economy is creating new stuff. So if the supply of money is growing slower than the supply of stuff, prices can actually fall. But that doesn't mean there's no inflation. Because had the government not inflated the money supply, prices would have fallen even more and consumers would have gotten an even bigger benefit from those price reductions. But sometimes, you know, price reductions can mask an underlying inflation problem. But that underlying inflation problem is about to get much worse. But let me get back to Powell and his ridiculous notion that the economy is, is, is growing so fast, right, that it's in danger of overheating, right? If you actually look what's going on, ironically, at the same time that Powell was talking about how great the economy was, the Atlanta Fed was issuing its latest downward revision for Q1 GDP. They were at 3.2% was the most recent um, estimate. Now they're at 26 They were at 5.4 three weeks ago. That's better than a 50% reduction in their estimate for Q1 GDP. Now, I remember when they first came up with a 5.4%. I mean, it was all over the place. Everybody was talking about it. Every website that covers the economy, you know, had an article about it. Oh, my God, 5.4%. Barely anybody is covering the fact that it's now down to 2.6%. See, apparently that's not news. 5.4% was, maybe because it was so ridiculous that people covered it, but they didn't cover it as if it were ridiculous. It was like, oh, wow, we're going to get all this economic growth. Well, now the the forecast is coming down to earth. And believe me, I think it still needs a long way to go. I think it's still in orbit. I think we still have to see a, a more revisions. In fact, if you look at the economic surprise index, we keep getting more and more bad economic news that comes as a surprise. And, you know, Powell is talking about how the economy is going to be so strong and that inflation is going to is going to stay under 2%. Right? He's confident that it's going to get back to 2%, but he doesn't think it's going much higher. So the Fed is wrong on both counts. They're wrong in thinking the economy is going to keep growing. It's not. Growth is going to contract and we're headed to recession. And they're wrong in their belief that inflation is contained to 2%. It's not. It's going much much higher than 2%. And you see most people don't believe that that's even consistent. The only reason most people who trade the markets are worried about inflation is because they think growth is going to be too strong. They don't realize that we're going to have no growth and more inflation at the same time because that is the norm, right? The stagflation that we experienced in the 1970s is not some kind of aberration. That's what we're going to have. I mean, weak economies are more apt to also have rising prices because they don't have the production. But we're going to have both. 
We're going to have stagnation, recession, and we're going to have inflation. And so Powell couldn't be more wrong. And neither are the markets. See, because the markets still believe all these rate hikes are coming. That's why the dollar is up a little bit. That's why gold's not going anywhere, because people still believe the Fed is going to raise rates because they still believe the economy is going to be as strong as the Fed thinks it is. It's not going to be. And the data is already showing that, but people are ignoring it. When the markets figure out that we're not going to get all the growth, which means we're not going to get all the rate hikes, that's when the dollar really tanks. And of course, when the Fed has to come to the rescue of both the economy and the markets with more QE and rate cuts, that's when the bottom drops out of the dollar. And that's when the roof is blown off of the price of gold. But let's look at some of the other economic data, including, you know, we got the second revision to Q4 GDP out today. And they revised that down from 2.6 to 2.5. Now, I think they're going to revise it a little lower uh, ne- next month when they when they get the, the next revision. I, I, actually, I was actually expecting a little bit lower than 2.5 this time. So we'll see. But assuming it stayed the same, right? Let's say it stays at 2.5 if that's the final. That means that last year, 2017, GDP grew by 2.3% for the entire year. That's the first year that Trump was president. Where is the Trump boom? 2.3%. The average GDP growth for the last four years of Obama or his entire second term was 2.2. So Trump said that that was a disaster, that 2.2 was a disaster. We needed a change. We need to make America great again. And now we got Trump and we don't have 2.2. We got 2.3. And all of a sudden, this is fantastic. There is no difference between 2.2 and 2.3, unless you want to count that tenth of 1%, which is probably a rounding error anyway. And in fact, if you look at Obama's second term in 2014 and 2015, the economy grew by GDP at 2.9 and 2.6. So at 2.3, we're well, we're well below that. So we had two years during the horrible years of Obama that were better than the great year of Trump. Now, of course, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, that's before the tax cuts, right? Now these tax cuts are kicking in. So we're going to have this great economic growth uh, for this year, except it's not going to happen. I mean, this is all part of the, the fantasy of growth. But let's look at some of the other economic news that came out today. Chicago PMI, big drop, uh, lowest, lowest in six months. We were at 65.7 last month. They were looking for 65. We got 61.9. Now, we're still above 50, but we'll see how much longer. 50 is the dividing line between economic expansion and economic contraction. But that was a much bigger drop than people thought. Pending home sales, these were a disaster, down 4.7%. That is the lowest level now that they're at. The index is at 104.6. This is the, the lowest level in about three and a half years, but it's the biggest drop in eight years in pending home sales. Now, why are home sales dropping? Well, for a number of reasons. One, prices are too high. Two, mortgage rates are going up, making houses less affordable, right? And the other one is the new tax law, right? There are now so many fewer people that will qualify for a tax break when they buy a house, particularly the first-time home buyer, right? So if you're in the market for a house, you're a first-time home buyer, and you're looking at a house between, I don't know, one hundred and fifty dollars and $200,000, right? A starter home, first-time home. Chances are you don't itemize your deductions anymore. You're just going to take the standard deduction. And what that means is that you derive no uh, tax benefit from buying your first home. 
And I know that a lot of reasons that people would buy a home as opposed to renting was that they compared the after-tax cost of owning versus the cost of renting, which was not deductible. But now those comparisons are going to weigh heavier in favor of renting because you're no longer going to get the tax break associated with buying because you're just going to get the same standard deduction. And the problem is if you take away the first-time home buyer, then you knock out the whole pyramid. I mean, now you got the trade-up buyer because there are people that want to sell their first home for two hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand, maybe whatever, and maybe trade up to a four or five hundred thousand dollar home. But you can't trade up unless you find somebody to buy you out of the home you already own. So once you knock out the first-time buyer, the trade-up buyer is gone too, and so the whole thing implodes like like dominoes. And meanwhile, you know, you've got insurance rates going up, property taxes going up, maintenance costs going up. Home ownership is becoming more expensive. Now, renting is becoming more expensive, too. So people are damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. But renting is going to be the more uh, economically viable alternative unless real estate prices really collapse, which I think they will do. And then if they, the prices fall enough, then maybe uh, buying will look more attractive. But we got a long way to go to the downside. But of course, when real estate prices collapse, what does that mean? That means people lose their home equity. If they still have it, and maybe people that have home equity, a lot of people, that's the majority of their wealth. And if that wealth disappears, well, the reverse wealth effect. Also, we know from prior experience that if home equity evaporates, foreclosures go up, right? Homeowners tend to mail in their keys as opposed to their mortgage payment. And so that can happen again. And this is all part of a contracting economy because, you know, if the real estate market collapses, what's the odds that that's going to happen without dragging down the entire economy, especially considering how big a part of the economy it is, the jobs that are associated with the real estate industry and the home equity and the consumption that is a function of home equity and all that and the wealth effect. So this is a big part of why the economy is in so much trouble because the real estate market is in so much trouble. And the troubles for the real estate market are only now just getting started because mortgage rates are just only now beginning to rise and they're going to go a lot higher. And also right now you have this record low unemployment. But what happens as more and more people start losing their jobs as the economy weakens? Certainly people will lose their jobs who are in the real estate industry as the real estate market continues to weaken. In fact, we got more really bad news Earlier in the week, we got the numbers for new home sales, and they dropped for the second consecutive month. In fact, it was, um, I think, the biggest uh, back-to-back decline since the summer of 2013. And that followed the bad news that we got on existing homes on Friday. So sales are declining. Pending sales are collapsing. So this is just early in this you know, real estate bear market, real estate slump, real estate recession. And so if the real estate market's going to be in a recession, what are the odds that the overall economy escapes recession? I think that is pretty slim. Look at the economic data that came out yesterday. Durable goods, big miss there, dropped 3.7%. They were looking for a drop of two. So they were looking for a bad number and it got worse. And they had an increase last month of 2.9, but they revised that to 26 uh, so this is, a again, another sign that the economy is far weaker than is generally perceived. But I think the worst news was the trade deficit that came out 10-year high, $74.4 billion in one month in January 
for goods, merchandise trade. I mean, that's a record or at least the highest for 10 years. But I mean, I and if, if oil is in there, I mean, it's good. So maybe oil is part of that. If you take out oil, uh, then it's you know by far an all-time record. They were looking for 71.3 billion, which would have been bad, but 74.4 is worse. And adding insult to injury, they took the December number that was already bad at 71.6, and they made that worse at 72.3. But if you look at the internals, they're even worse because both imports and exports fell. It's just that exports fell more. Exports dropped by 2.2% and imports dropped by 5%. So this is this shows that the economy is getting weaker. We're importing less. We're exporting less. Our trade deficit is getting bigger. That directly subtracts from GDP. Now, of course, we're into the first quarter, these numbers here, because this is now January. But the December number was revised a little bit bigger. I don't know if that's already in the number that we just got today uh, for the second revision. Maybe that's going to be used for the the final revision that that we get coming up, which is one of the reasons I think they'll revise it down again. But you look at all this bad news. The only supposed positive news for GDP was a bigger than expected increase in inventories, right, both at the wholesale and retail level. But this could be a double-edged sword. Because one of the reasons that inventories could be rising so much is because companies are not selling much. I mean, they, they're anticipating, again, they're all excited uh, about this economic boom that they're reading about. And so they're gearing up for it by, by loading up on more stuff. But if they can't sell the stuff that they're loading up on, then their inventories build. Now, that helps the GDP. So that might be a little bit of a bump for GDP in Q1. But what happens if companies build up big inventories that they can't sell, well, that's going to be a drain on GDP in Q2 or Q3. So this might not even be a good sign. I mean, the fact that merchants are optimistic that their customers can buy, but the customers themselves can't buy. Now, we're going to get some economic data tomorrow. We're going to get um, personal income and spending. So that will give us a little bit more of a look. We get some more economic numbers, too, that come out tomorrow. In fact, the Atlanta Fed is going to be issuing another estimate on uh, GDP tomorrow. So if we get more bad economic news, which uh, you know would add to the bad economic news that has already come out today, right? Which which is after uh, their last um, their last downward revision, then we can easily be well below two and a half percent for Q1, and you know which is barely above the 2.3% that we got for all of 2017. But if we can barely get any economic growth for the first quarter of 2018, what makes anybody think it's going to get any better in the second quarter or the third quarter, especially if we get the stock market going down? I mean, especially if we have entered a bear market in stocks, which is certainly uh, a possibility that that has happened. I mean, the volatility has spiked, I think, the month of February had more, whatever, 100-point swings or more than that in one month than all of last year combined, or one, I forget what the number was, but it was a very volatile month. And again, big increases in volatility following long periods of time of a lack of volatility in a trend is much more of an indication that the trend has changed than that it is going to continue in the direction of the trend. If you look at the VIX, I mean, We've pulled back, but we closed today just about 20, just under 20. But the chart to me looks like a breakout. You know, we got as high as maybe 35 in the last move down. 
But I think we're going to take that high out. I mean, to me, you know, the VIX looks like it's broken its downtrend. And that downtrend's been in place since 2008. And so I think it's going a lot higher. Gold, on the other hand, gold is going to move, right? Gold, as I said, didn't do much today. It was pretty much flat on the day, ended up down less than a buck. But it was never up really more than a buck or two all day, despite what's going on. And I think this, again, has to do with the fact that the dollar was stronger today. Dollar index up about 90.6, 90.7. Not a big move up. But again, it's all about Powell's comments yesterday about how fast the economy is growing and how now we may get four rate hikes rather than three. And people are ignoring what's actually happening. They're focusing on what the Fed is pretending is happening. And they're not looking at the evidence of what is actually happening, nor are they thinking about what is likely to happen given what is going on with our budget deficits, with our trade deficits. Uh, how can the economy withstand this? And, you know, people are still pretty content that, well, rates, you know, aren't going to go above 3%. The yield on the 10 year was actually down a bit today. We're back down at 2.868. So people maybe are not worried. But if you look at the size of these deficits, there is no way that without QE that rates are only going to go to 3%. There's no way they're only going to go to 4%. There's no way they're only going to go to 5%. If the Fed is not there to finance this debt, then there is no way to finance it at these interest rates. Rates must go substantially higher. And by the way, the foreign central banks aren't there either. So we need real buyers. And if we're going to get real buyers... They're going to need a real rate of return. But the problem is we can't afford that. See, that is the catch-22. In order to finance deficits on the magnitude of the ones that we have, we're going to have to pay a historically high uh, rate of return to lenders. But the problem is we cannot afford that because we're too broke. So any rate of return that's high enough to attract an investor is too high for us to pay which means it's impossible to attract an investor because it's impossible to pay. So the Fed is going to have to blink, right? Which is what my bet is, that the Fed at some point is going to have to give up this ghost of this great economy and that we're going to keep on raising interest rates and they're going to have to stop talking about doing the opposite. But the fine line that they want to walk is how do they do that without you know, admitting the economy is weak? I mean, how do they help the economy without admitting it needs help? They have to come up with a script for this thing because Trump wants to continue to pretend everything is great. Republicans want to run in 2018 on a booming economy. Well, how can the economy be booming if it needs the crutch of the Fed? If the Fed has to cut rates, and it, then how do you just how do you square that? How do you square the image of a strong economy that also has to be on life support by the Fed? So that is the the problem that they're they're trying to solve. I'm sure they're going to come up with some way of spinning it. Maybe if they just backtrack or they say, well, you know, we're not as worried about inflation and look, we need to give the economy a little bit more room to run, you know, without saying that it needs help, just saying, look, there's no reason to to build roadblocks in its place. We shouldn't jump the gun on inflation. We shouldn't just assume, you know, maybe we don't need all these rate hikes. I mean, they're going to try to find some way to talk the markets up without admitting how weak the economy is, but that may not work. As I said, I think they're going to actually need to do QE4. I don't think just hinting about the possibility or just saying that they're not going to get more hikes because the minute they take the rate hikes away, the dollar is going to plunge. And as the dollar plunges, commodity prices are going to go up more. And so inflation is going to pick up more. And so now you're going to have that problem. So there is no real way out of this. 
But at some point, people, you know, trading gold are going to have to figure this out, that that gold is going to go up and the dollar is going to go down. And it doesn't matter what the Fed says about how strong the economy is. It doesn't matter what they're pretending they're going to do with with interest rates. You know, I always thought, you know, from the beginning, never when the Fed was talking about tapering. And I was like, well, you know, I don't it's probably a bluff. They, they can't taper. And they they actually tapered. And they did it very slowly. It took a lot longer than people thought, but they finally did it. Then they were talking about raising rates. I was like, well, they can't raise rates, right? They got to be bluffing. And they raised rates, but it was a bluff in that they raised them much slower than people thought. And they're nowhere near as high as people thought. But what my thinking was, and again, I probably overestimated the intelligence of the Fed, which is probably you know a relatively easy thing to do. See, I thought that it would be worse for the Fed to have to reverse course. If they could have simply, you know, continued uh, the QE, right? Like, you know, Europe is still doing QE, right? I mean, yeah, they haven't stopped. If they could have kept rates at zero, they could have kept pretending that one day they're going to normalize them. They just that we're not at that day yet, right? They could have said, we don't want to be too too quick. But because they, they, they did everything, right, because they're raising rates and because they're still pretending they're going to normalize them and because they're still pretending that they're going to shrink their balance sheet, when they ultimately have to reverse course, that I think does more damage to their credibility because I think it will prove once and for all that there is no way out of this policy. Because if the Fed tries to normalize interest rates but can't do it and then has to go back to zero, if the Fed tries to shrink its balance sheet or acts as if it's going to shrink its balance sheet and then not only can't do it, but has to make it even bigger, why will anybody fall for the same BS in the future when it's even less likely that it can be accomplished? Because if the Fed couldn't raise rates from zero last time, if they couldn't normalize, if they couldn't even get to 2%, and then they got to go back down to zero then why should they be able to do it in the future? Because it'll be even harder in the future than it was in the past because we'll have that much more debt, right? And if they couldn't shrink a $4.5 trillion balance sheet without disrupting the economy, which is why they can't shrink it, how are they going to shrink an $8 trillion balance sheet or a $10 trillion balance sheet? And you know, think about this. If the budget deficits that we are now estimating that we're going to have in the next fiscal year are actually going to be larger or as large or larger, larger than the ones that Obama ran early in the Great Recession, which was the worst depression since, I mean, the worst recession since the Great Depression. And we had these deficits. And now we are having deficits even bigger than that when the economy is supposedly doing great. Can you imagine the size of the deficits that we're going to have to run during the next recession? I mean, two to three trillion. Can anybody possibly believe that we can run those kind of deficits for a number of years and sustain that? And then how do we wean ourselves off of that? And then how are we going to have future uh, deficits that are bigger than that when the economy is good so that they'll have to be even bigger? Right. Again, it's like this drug addict where you do more and more drugs. And then in order to get high, you need a larger and larger dose. Well, my point is that the amount of of monetary and deficit heroin that we're going to need in order to stimulate ourselves out of this next recession is already going to be too much. It is already going to result in an economic overdose, in a monetary overdose. And 
We are getting closer and closer to that point, which is why I continue to press that anybody, again, listening to these podcasts, you got to do something. You got to do something before so many people who are asleep wake up and realize how wrong they are and how wrong they've been and how long they've been wrong. And so you've got this window of opportunity. Don't know when it's going to slam shut, but before it does, you got to get your financial house in order. If you don't have an account with Euro Pacific Capital, open one up, talk to one of my reps, get out of the U.S. stock market, get out of the U.S. bond market. You can move over your IRA. Uh, you know, you can roll one over. If you're leaving a job, you can roll over 401k into an IRA, put personal money, get it out of harm's way, but be positioned to profit from the deflation of this dollar bubble. Get yourself some gold, buy some silver. This stuff is dirt cheap. Once the market moves, we'll never see these prices again in terms of dollars. So, you know, go to shift gold and, and get some gold. And of course, if you already have an account with Euro Pacific Capital, great. Add to it. Take advantage of this sucker rally in the dollar that we've had, even though the dollar fell last year and it's falling again this year. It still had that huge sucker rally in 2014 and 2015 before we completely unwind that. Get rid of your dollars. Sell more of your overpriced U.S. stocks. If you simply have your your Euro Pacific account as part of your portfolio and you had a particular allocation internationally, increase the size of that allocation. Decrease the amount of money that you have allocated to overpriced U.S. stocks and bonds in an overvalued dollar and increase the amount of money you have allocated outside the U.S. into commodity-based companies, emerging markets, uh, safe, you know, dividend yielding stocks and developed markets. This is the time to do it. And I would not be waiting because we have no idea when the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar. It's going to be like an emperor has no clothes moment. I can see that the emperor is naked, but for some reason, my opinion doesn't count. But eventually, somebody whose opinion does count or a number of people whose opinions count are going to finally recognize the emperor for what he is, and see him in all his nakedness. And when that happens, you want to make sure that you are already fully positioned and fully prepared because nobody is going to want to get caught in that kind of a stampede.